This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. There's, you know, powerful people that are denying things that yeah. we are writing. You know, we come to public affairs with a story and they say, no, that's not true. But it turns out to be completely true. Mm -hmm. And the decision is whether to report it anyway. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by an award-winning journalist and Politico's Pentagon reporter, the amazing Lara Seligman. Throughout her career, Lara has covered topics ranging from the Navy to the Air Force. I think that's when I met you when you were still... It was before you were at the Foreign, Pol Foreign Policy magazine. At Aviation Week, at probably. Aviation Week, yes. Yep. yep, so we're at Aviation Week, covering the issues and the stories that have just pathbreaking from the, you know how the Pentagon actually works, fractures in the civil service, personnel movements, but also the rapidly expanding terrorism threat in the Sahel and accompanying the Secretary of Defense on all sorts of engagements around the world, multiple secretaries of defense. So, Laura, we're so thrilled you're here. You've literally been on the cutting edge of Pentagon reporting since I've known you and well before. <laughs> so it's just a delight <laughs> to have you here on the podcast. I'd love to start the conversation by asking you how you got into this business. Was it journalism or national security? Was it both? Were you one of those weirdos like me that knew early on that you wanted to do national security? Or what, what drew you to this field? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for that very flattering introduction. <laughs> I don't know if I deserve all of that praise, <laughs> but I appreciate it. So yeah, for me, it was journalism. Yep. And I knew that I wanted to be a writer when I was in college. But then I discovered by taking a few writing lessons that I am not that great at fiction writing, which is what I thought I wanted to do. So I joined the newspaper and I was a reporter and an editor. And the newspaper where I was at Penn back then was no joke. It was every day. It was like 5 p.m. to probably 4 a.m. every wow. day, every weekday. So it was not it was not a joke that took up my whole life. And I just loved it. It was yeah. amazing. And I knew that was what I wanted to do. So I... Well, you're given those kind of hours. And yeah, yeah, you kind of yeah. had to be a little That's bit a of a, a freak for that. <laughs> <laughs> Journalism freak, which is a good thing. <laughs> um, so I loved it. And then I got some internships over the summer in D.C. I knew I wanted to come to D.C. I got a fellowship out of college at National Journal. That was my first job out of college, covering Congress and kind of doing all the things that all the reporters wanted me to do, like being their little go person. I got laid off of that job. And I don't know if you guys know what National Journal is anymore because it's not around anymore because they were just hemorrhaging money. Right. Um, and then I went to the Hill newspaper and I was basically a breaking news reporter. 
But I just decided after that, I really wanted to do my own reporting and get sources, do more investigations. So I started looking at job opportunities and I saw that there was an opening for a, a trade publication covering the Navy, Navy acquisition, which is very weedy. But I'd always mm-hmm. been interested in national security. Obviously, as a journalist, I read the news all the time and I was always interested in foreign policy, national security. So I thought this would be a good opportunity. And I definitely credit that job with launching my career and teaching me how to make sources. I had so many great mentors there. And I really was able to go to the Pentagon and meet people and figure out how to do investigation, get documents and find the stories that no one else is looking at. So from there, I kind of bounced around the trade publications. I covered the Air Force for Defense News. I covered military aviation for Aviation Week. And I covered the Pentagon for Foreign Policy. And that was my first sort of foray into more mainstream journalism. And then from there, I went to Politico. And I've been covering the Pentagon for them for two and a half years now, which I think is the longest I've been at any job in my career. <laughs> so go Politico. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's how, that's how I got here. From the sort of more niche Air Force Navy acquisition to to the broader Pentagon stories. How did you navigate that transition? Because looking at the Pentagon through that soda straw to like all of a sudden there's this fire hose. Just be curious, like how, how did you experience that? Yeah, it was really interesting. I think that coming from the acquisition world is really important to covering the Pentagon mm-hmm. and national security more broadly. Yeah. Because you you have those building blocks and covering acquisition is so, so hard and so weedy. I feel like if you can do that and follow the money and figure out the budgets and everything that Congress is doing, then you can kind of do anything. I feel like I had good fundamentals and then all I needed to do, it was more sort of in my lens of looking at things. I had to broaden my lens and think more from the audience perspective, like why would a normal person want to know about Navy shipbuilding, for example? And I still write those stories, but the lens has gotten broader and broader. So you have to think, why does your average person, why would anyone read something like that? Mm -hmm. Navy shipbuilding, it's jobs. You point out, you know, just how many hundreds of thousands of jobs across the country this is going to cost. How many, it's a ton of money, point out billions and billions of dollars. You go to the congressmen that it impacts and they always have good quotes. So it's really just changing your perspective and then changing your writing a little bit and just writing in more sweeping, broad language at the top. And then it's kind of like a inverted pyramid. You just, you write the weedier stuff like further down. Interesting. So it's the big hook and then the sort of trail of breadcrumbs to the to the meat and potatoes yes. to mix a whole bunch of metaphors. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, yes. I definitely I mix metaphors a lot. My editor is not pleased when I do that. <laughs> but it's true. When I think about my career, one of my first jobs was working on the project on nuclear issues here. And I've always thought that understanding the nuclear weapons issues is a fundamental building block for understanding defense policy. And so it's interesting that the acquisition side and mm-hmm. Navy acquisition also is a, a fundamental building block for understanding yeah. how, how the Pentagon works. Yeah. And nuclear issues have always been my weak spot. So <laughs> nuclear issues and missile defense are harder for me. So mm-hmm. I get the money stuff. I know Navy shipbuilding, Air Force, aviation, but those are my weak spots. So we can complement each yeah, other here. We can totally hook each other up. <laughs> yep, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> well, so So turning to the decision that we want to talk about today, this is a tough one, I think, for our audiences. The decision is surrounding the fall of Afghanistan and Lara's decisions to cover the fall the way Politico did, which was not without controversy. And that was a heartbreaking moment 
for all of us who'd worked on Afghanistan. And I mean, I say that as if we were the only ones impacted, right? No, it was just heartbreaking for America. It was heartbreaking for Afghanistan. It was so hard to watch. So we're coming up on the one-year mark of that, and we're still seeing the implications. So on August 15th, 2021, you and your colleagues posted the story entitled Taliban Seize Power Mid-Chaos in Kabul. Can you set the scene for us? What was what was happening in the newsroom at the time? Well, I think what was happening was that no one really saw this coming until a couple days before that. I'd obviously been covering the Taliban's advances and saying to the newsroom and asking questions of the Pentagon, this looks like it's going to happen pretty soon. What are you doing about it? What's the intelligence saying? And the answer repeatedly was, oh, we have more time. We have more. We have weeks. We have months. We have more time. And it all actually unfolded while I, I was on vacation that week. And as we were chatting earlier, I was also seven months pregnant. So I'm, I'm at the beach reading the news, seeing and then realizing, oh, my God, Kabul is going to fall yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. So, of course, I get back on my phone and I say, you know, what do you guys need? Coming back from vacation um, on the drive back, actually, I was I was on my phone writing stories. Um, and from there, it was just clear to everyone that I talked to and everyone and on our national security team that nobody in the Biden administration had seen this coming or prepared for it. And I Which think- is fascinating yeah. because there, I mean, hindsight, of course, is 2020, but there were some indications and warnings that this was not going to yes, go well. there were. And from reporters, I mean, I was, tell I was asking these questions for months. I had, I did a big story about the, the SIVs, um, the, the Afghan refugees, um, that the were trying to come. Yes, the special immigrant visas. And based on conversations with the State Department, they had a, a task force dedicated to evacuations. Um, I think this was in July. Right. It was like July 15th, maybe they set this up. Mm -hmm. And one of the first questions I asked the, the, the lead was, why is this taking you so long? I mean, we're supposed mm -hmm. to be out of here by September. Don't you think you need more time? And she just seemed not concerned at all. And I put this in the story. She seemed not concerned. She said, we have time. We're aligned with the military. It's fine. And it just was just so clear to me that if things were not fine. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't believe my ears, honestly. And Congress, congressmen, I talked to Congressman Waltz a lot about this issue. Uh, there were many congressmen sounding the alarms. And it all happened the way that these people said it would. I mean, it just, right. just crumbled. I'd be interested in your views about you know, where, if you have any, or you may not, on the where the breakdowns were um, in terms of what the, because there, there were these demands, so there were the, and, um, but, but, but somehow, somehow in these processes, it didn't sort of get actioned. And I, I don't know if you've got sort of putting you on the spot. So feel free if you now have an answer, that's fine too. But um, yeah, no, it's definitely something I've thought a lot about. And I think, I think that a lot of the blame does lie with the State Department yeah. for falling down on some of these issues and relying on the military for these issues. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think there were people in the military that were warning that this could happen. Nobody knew that it could happen this quickly, I don't right. think. Even yeah. the intelligence community, I don't think they thought it would happen this quickly. Right. But 
you know, I, I do think the State Department did not move quickly enough ahead of time. And then after Kabul fell, the military and even I was talking to so many people, even regular people outside the military, people on the Hill who were literally in WhatsApp chat groups trying to organize people in Afghanistan who were trying to get out, connect them on WhatsApp with people in the military, U.S. officers to get them through the gates, Yes, um, which is the job the State Department should have been doing. So it, it does seem to me like people in the State Department kind of fell down yeah. on the job. And it was it was amazing to watch all these informal networks, WhatsApp groups start, you know, forming, coordinating with each other, like with folks on the ground, with D.C., figuring out the logistics, arrival. I mean, it, it became this like national ad hoc effort. And then we got Task Force Pineapple, Inc., all these crazy things, because so many people were so concerned about our Afghan counterparts who had risked their lives to support the American effort and were and are targets now. So, um, so, so you are watching all this happen. There's been indications and warning for a while. You've been sort of telling people for a while that this is going to be an issue. Um, and then it breaks. And then, so you're on the way back from the beach as, as, Kabul is falling. Um, and, and your stories as you get back into the newsroom, right, continue. You know, Kabul's collapse followed by a string of intel failures, defense officials say. Um, there's the, the, the poor Afghan in the landing gear of the, I mean, just so terrible. Ho- horrible. Um, and those were really difficult stories to read from the outside. I, I can't imagine how you must have written them and how must have felt to write them. I I guess, could could you walk us through what it was like at the time? Yeah, it was really overwhelming because I and a lot of other journalists I know, I'm sure, were just getting messages on email and WhatsApp and Signal every day from 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 refugees, from SIVs asking for help. Like, can you connect me with the Pentagon? My family is going to be killed. I really need to get out of here. And of course, we all know veterans and other people mm-hmm. that were in Afghanistan. I mean, I have I have friends that have severe PTSD from the what right. happened last summer because they all know these people personally and people are getting killed, people's families are being persecuted. It was really really tough. But the thing that was the hardest was figuring out how to cover the these mistakes that the administration was making mm-hmm. because this is the Biden administration and everyone is very on message and they don't like bad press and they're very controlling. Mm-hmm. So we certainly got a lot of pressure to not report certain things or to spin it a certain way and not caving to that and standing up for myself was was difficult. I mean, certainly in in any situation like this, that's what the dynamics would be. I don't think the Biden administration was any different than any others, but but it was it was definitely really tough because there's, you know, powerful people that are denying things that yeah. we are writing, you know, we come to public affairs with a story and they say no, that's not true, but it turns out to be completely true mm-hmm. and the decision is whether to report it anyway. Right. That was really hard. Definitely. Yeah. So how how did you make those decisions? How did that play out? 
Well, one story I, I wrote was about um, how uh, the U.S. military was handing over lists of um, of Afghan SIVs to the Taliban. Right. They were trying to evacuate these people. Right. And they gave like manifests basically yes. to the Taliban because the Taliban was um, – ferrying people in and out and doing security for mm-hmm. we had to rely on the Taliban for security. So that was a very interesting story to report because um you know I don't want to reveal my sources but but I and my two colleagues had a lot of sources, good sources that we trusted telling us that this was happening. Yeah. And other people that will remain unnamed but that I went to said do not publish this. This is false. This is not true. And they were very, very angry about it. Do you th- do you think is that is that bureaucratic friction? Do you think like like sometimes I wonder the extent to which the Pentagon actually knew what was happening on the ground <laughs> <laughs> versus like other people? Um, I think some of it is is that some of the information was very very high level. Yeah. Okay. Um. So maybe they didn't know. Right. Uh, I don't want to say these people were lying. Yeah, maybe, sure. Maybe they didn't know and they were being, uh, you know, doing mm-hmm. their job and being guard dogs. Yeah. Um, but so we pub- we had published the story and then one of my colleagues was getting yelled at by someone who said it wasn't true. And so we were kind of freaking out. Mm-hmm. And then the president held a press conference that night and someone asked him about the story and he said it was true. He confirmed it. And my my wow. heart was just like I think it, I think it stopped <laughs> when he got asked the question, <laughs> and oh. then he confirmed it, and mm-hmm. that it was a, that was a good feeling. But that feeling happens a lot in my job. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I guess, and that sort of like being able to see through. It's not it's not gaslighting. It's not like intentional, but like yeah, but, but that fog of information and, right, and sort exactly. of sticking to. So and sometimes how- it is gaslighting. <laughs> sometimes it is. In this in this case, I don't think so. But but yeah, you do have to you have to go with your gut and trust your sources. How did this moment impact your style of journalism and how you you report on stories since then? I think it has definitely made me more critical. I mean, oh. I was I was already critical, I think, but mm-hmm. but certainly more critical in my reporting and it it did teach me to trust my sources and yeah. trust my gut and trust my colleagues that I'm working with mm-hmm. and not to second guess myself so much but actually that brings me to a point that I was I was thinking about for this podcast because I think I think as women for better or for worse we do tend to second guess ourselves a lot mm-hmm. and I certainly second guess myself all the time when I'm reporting. And I, I think that that can really be a good thing because there's a lot of people that wouldn't second guess and mm-hmm. wouldn't take into account hearing a spokesperson or someone telling them this is wrong, this is wrong. Um, but I do feel like women are better at hearing that criticism and like internalizing it and seeing the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And I think I think we're more careful and get things right. If we can get through those moments of doubt, yes, right, so, right, that's exactly, the, that's the trick. Like, right. ha- like yeah. to to not have that sort of 
that self-doubt or that imposter syndrome. I know some people get, are driven nuts by the term imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I think it captures something interesting. But not be seized by that, or but but actually just sort of use that as a cue, like, no, I'm going to make sure that all my citations are right. And exactly. Like, my sourcing yes. is right. Yeah. yeah. And I've definitely, that's something that I've had to work at yeah. a lot, just doubting myself, uh, doubting what I'm going to report. And if I can channel that into just making sure, like you said, I check all the boxes, double check everything, everything's mm-hmm. accurate, then then I think it works in my favor. But it's definitely something that can go the other way. That's so interesting. Yeah. Usefully channeling, productively channeling that that impulse. So when you look back at this experience of, you know, August 2021 and the collapse of Afghanistan and and your decisions in that in the in the reporting and the coverage, do you do you think being a woman impacted how you covered these stories and and Politico was different to a lot of the other outlets right so do, do you think gender had, it, had made a difference here or not so much and if so why i in this case i don't think it had a huge impact okay. because i think i think i was covering it as a reporter who covers the military. Mm-hmm. I don't and I don't I don't think my gender had an impact there other mm-hmm. than what we just discussed right. in being really careful, being extra careful and doubting myself. So I, I don't think so. And I, I do think there's a lot of women that cover the military nowadays. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we all covered it the same. Right. I think we all had different perspectives. I think it really came back to my individual perspective and my individual reporting. Mm-hmm. But I do. I think it's more normal these days to have female reporters covering the military. There's, I know, tons and tons. Right. I was thinking about like the the newsroom. Like, how many women are in the Pentagon? Like, well, we have most of our national security reporters actually are women. There's there's me. There's Nahal Tusi covering the State Department. Mm-hmm. Betsy is covering DOJ. I think we only have one. It's it's the three of us and Alex. <laughs> That's what we say. <laughs> We only have one male national security reporter. <laughs> and we love you to bits, Alex. <laughs> right. Exactly. We do. We love Alex. <laughs> but it's, it's just funny. We joke about it. Mm-hmm. This is such an interesting inversion from what you would think of is the normal composition of that kind of newsroom. But do you, fi- do you find that that is empowering at all or, or just the way we do business? I think it's very cool. Yeah. I think it's very cool. Yeah. And when you see female reporters on TV who are in Afghanistan, I mean, that's really cool too, actually being there. And I know tons of women that are in that position. So it's 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 very cool. And it feels like it's changed a lot in the last 10 years because when I started covering the Pentagon, it was mostly male. It was mostly mm-hmm. men. And that was only, you know, not even 10 years ago. What do you think... If I could push you on that a little bit more, has the way the media has covered the Pentagon changed as a result of the composition of the the newsroom? I don't know. That's a very good question. The Pentagon specifically? I'm not We're sure. Just, I, I don't know. Maybe the national security, security discourse overall. I mean, I wonder mm-hmm. to what extent we're contemplating stories in a different way mm-hmm. or through different angles. And, and framing them for public audiences in ways that, that mm-hmm. were different and maybe it's not 10, just, 15 years ago. It's not just reporters. It's There's so many women in the Pentagon now, right. which is great. It's also not great for my sources because all of the experts that I went to for <laughs> like Syria, for example, for example, they're, they're all these wonderful women, but they're now in the Pentagon, so I can't <laughs> talk to them anymore, which is very frustrating to me. But I find that really cool too. So 
I mean, I do think it's, you know, it's a recent question. So it's, some, it's mm-hmm. something we are still, that's still playing out. But how does the fact that there are so many women at the top levels of the Pentagon now, how is that affecting national security? Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know yet. I really don't. I think if you were to ask Kat Hicks, mm-hmm. for example, who's the first female deputy secretary of defense, I think she would say that it doesn't. Yeah. Affect it doesn't it doesn't it's not something she thinks about right she just does her job that's right. typically the answer that I get from groundbreaking women mm-hmm. at the Pentagon Ellen mm-hmm. Lord for example the chief weapons buyer under Trump I think she was the first woman to have that job mm-hmm. yeah and I think they just do their jobs yeah they're not there because they're women they're there because they're the experts right and they exactly. they know their their stuff yeah. So. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining us and sharing your experience of this really important moment in the the unfolding of U.S. national security and not a very proud one for for America. But so thank you for sharing that. And also thank you for the amazing reporting that you do. Like you got to read her stories when when Laura is on to a story, you know, it's you know, it's important and and it's, it's one to watch. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening, and join us next time. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.